All right. Good morning. Some people are going to be watching this. Good evening. Your week's off. You should have gotten up and gone to a morning one. Just kidding. Um, nothing like trying to stay awake and listening to a 45-minute talk, right? Can't beat it. My name is Bill White, and I um, teach here some and serve on our staff leadership team. And a few years ago, we were uh, listening to a talk by one of the leaders at Chick-fil-A who was talking about uh, a two-year study, I think it was, that they had done to identify what some core values were for their organization in terms of leadership development and cultivation. And we began to have an idea that that was an important thing for us to do. And so, although leadership has always been something that I think is a strength of our church that characterizes us, the ability to to make decisions, to move, um, to take responsibility, um, we began to think about that in a new way. And we were thinking in particular for our staff. Our staff was growing, and we felt a real sense of responsibility to equip them, to help them understand standards that we were looking for, things that we expected out of those who worked at our church and who represented our church. And, but as we got deeper into it, we realized that it had greater implications. And so Matt referred to that a little bit last week, but I wanted to make that clearer for you. Here's what I would say as we get started this morning with the first of these values, um, that, a, that an effective leader is one who owns the cause. I want to give you just a little bit of background as to why this is especially important for men. It's critical for men and for women, but why is this especially important for men? In order to do that, I want to just, Dan referred to four pillars. I don't, do we call them pillars? I don't remember. You said four pillars of manhood. Did you make that up while you were standing up here? Okay, it's possible. Dan Dather's making stuff up this morning. So, um, I'm just kidding. Here we, we, have, we have four ideas that have been critical for us as a church and for us and our understanding of what it means to be a man. And so I want to just kind of look at these for a second. We have a slide here that a man is someone who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, in expectation of God's reward. Now, th these are ideas, they are not new to us. We just stole them from a guy who's kind of been a hero for a lot of our leadership. He's a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas, who spent a lot of time working and thinking about the idea of what it means to be a man and some of the core struggles that are facing men. And so this idea of rejecting responsibility, I mean, rejecting passivity, rejecting responsibility, that'd be awesome, right? Wouldn't we all like to, all right? That's what we want to do. To reject passivity, to accept responsibility, to lead courageously in expectation of God's reward. Here's what we see is that leadership is at the core of what it means to be a man. It isn't something that we do. It was something that we were created for. Adam was created first. He was put in the garden. He was given direction and he was given a challenge and a command to fill the earth and subdue it. Eve was created in response to his inability to accomplish that on his own. He could not be fruitful. He could not accomplish that. She was created out of a response of his relational deficit. He needed someone to come alongside him, but he was created 
fashioned, woven out of the dust of the earth, imbued with God, with the breath of life, for the purpose of taking responsibility and bringing leadership to the world that God had made. He created the world in such a way as it needed that, and the man was the solution for that. And so leadership is at the core of what it means to be a man. It's not something that we ought to think about doing or that we ought to look for an opportunity here or there. It's a part of the rationale for our creation. Now, different ones of us are gifted in different ways, so let's not confuse the spiritual gift of leadership with this core calling that is on us all, right? So different ones of us are gifted in different ways, and that's fine. That's a part of God's sovereign working, but at the root What we want to acknowledge is that for a man, leadership is a huge deal. Now, Matt listed out for you last week. I'm going to put them again because I want you to see them, our leadership values. And so these are, it's not the only way we could talk about it. It's the way that we're going to talk about it. There are other ways that you could frame it. You could put character at the beginning. Cultivating character could be put at the beginning. But here's what we would say. A leader is one who owns the cause, is action-oriented, embraces ambiguity, builds relational capital, reinvents continuously, and cultivates or is self-aware. If you're going to be effective as a leader, we believe that all of those things have to be present. In increasing measure... They are practices, they are skills that can be developed, that need to be worked on, and and it needs to be used. It's a grid that we use to measure ourselves, to see how are we doing, am I cultivating these things? We're going to be talking about each of those as we go along. Now, let me just give you a couple of things as a background. Matt made reference to a Peter Drucker book. These books are not rooted in Christianity, but I'm just going to tell you, these have been really, really helpful for us. All right, and so I have a slide for these two books. One is The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. The other one is Good to Great, which is, and really it's, it's an updated, different Stanford research studied application and analysis of great companies. Um, and, and really it's a study of leadership that arises out of some of Drucker's work. Jim Collins and Peter Drucker. They are two of the towering figures in leadership in the last century, I would argue. Jim Collins still alive, Drucker certainly, but I think Jim Collins is going to be seen that way, although he mined heavily from Drucker and gives Drucker a lot of credit for that. I think it would be helpful for you, depending on how you're wired up, to be intentional and take responsibility. This is what I would say to you. If at the core of why God created you is leadership, the study of leadership would just be a good idea for you. To make that an overriding preoccupation, for me, there are certain things. I'm what I like to call a promiscuous reader, right? So I'm a promiscuous reader. I try to make sure that's the only form of promiscuity that I have in my life. But as a nerd joke, which obviously y'all didn't get, all right? But I'm a promiscuous reader. I read lots of different kinds of things. I try to make sure that I read. I read books on mathematics like once a year to feel stupid. I read books on science just to kind of know what's going on. I read books on history and biography. I read stuff for fun. And then one of the things that I make sure that I'm always reading on some ongoing basis is I read about leadership. Because I know that that gets to the core of who I am. So I just want to encourage you. Those, there are lots of books that are out there on leadership. Those are two books that have been real helpful for us. If you read them, you'll see um, 
you'll see a lot of our thoughts have, have come out of and through there. Now, let's talk about this idea of owning the cause, because that's what we're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so talking about. What, is, what does this idea mean of owning the cause? And I would start by defining it in the negative, all right? Someone who doesn't own the cause is someone who uses what is, in my opinion, the weakest word in the English language, a lot. And that word is they. They. Someone who doesn't own the cause, this is how they talk about it, all right? So if you're not owning the cause, then you go to the little community rec fields, and you walk in and you go, huh, I wonder why they didn't pick up the trash, right? I was a Little League volunteer for a lot of years. I don't know if you know this, but Little League is run by volunteers exclusively. That's how it works. Now, some people cheat because it's hard to get volunteers and they slide a little money under the table. But the philosophy of Little League, right, is that everybody's a volunteer. They make a big deal. It's a big part of what the culture is. And I used to be at those fields when my kids were playing. And sometimes I would end up, one time my wife, my wife's infected with owning the cause of everything. And so she volunteered for me to teach two baseball teams in the same season. It was an awesome spring, I assure you. But it would always be interesting to me that we're up there, we're killing ourselves doing all this stuff, and then these parents would roll in who paid their $25 registration fee late, and then they would walk around and they'd be like, well, I wonder what they were doing. What are they doing around here? What are they thinking? And I'm like, hey, there is no they. I don't know if y'all been paying attention. There's only we. It's the people who live in this community who are creating an opportunity for these young people to have an experience. But there was a real clear line that was there, that was present, that was obvious between the people who embraced the cause, who owned the cause, and the people who walked around saying they. And so I would just tell you that there are a lot of four-letter words that you can get away with in leadership. There are a lot of four-letter words you can get away with in leadership in our church. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. They is not one of them. That is a dirty word. It guts, it guts the ability to lead. It makes it impossible. Because what it means is that you are distancing yourself from any responsibility for what's going on. So it's a good place to start and to think. When you think about your family, do you think about them or do you think about us? You can even take it and put it into she. When you think about your wife, do you think about her? Do you think about she? My wife actually hates that name. It's like if, if we're ever talking about something and one of the boys says something, and they say, well, you know what well, she said, and Rachel will be in the other room, and you'll hear her say, she has a name. She doesn't want to be reduced to that. But a lot of times, when you say, when you're talking about your, your wife and you say she, what you're doing is you're distancing yourself from her and from any responsibility for what it is that she has done. So I was having a conversation with a man not that long ago. And we were talking about something that his wife is struggling with. And, and in some ways, as he was just processing out loud, it wasn't a harsh rebuke, but he was processing out loud and he was talking about his wife's family of origin. And he's just talking about his wife's family of origin. I said, hey, can I tell you something? Who has your wife lived longer with? Her mother and her father or you? He said, that would be me. 
I was like, I was just wondering. Who's who's responsible? Who's had more influence? Who's had more opportunity to affect change? Just curious. I think this idea of distancing ourselves is something that we got to get our brains wrapped around. And in order to do it, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to look at a text, all right? So with that idea overarching that to own the cause means you have to cultivate a we mentality as opposed to a they mentality, if we put it positively. So if we summarize it, is that someone who owns the cause cultivates a we mentality and not a they mentality. And every leader, anyone who is going to be effective, who is going to have influence, anyone who is owning responsibility is going to speak we, not they. And this, this is a huge deal for us as a, as a staff or whenever we have a leader who represents something, we want to talk to them about, hey, now when you get up, you say we. And if you can't say we, then before you say, here's what we are going to do, if you can't say we in a good conscience, it means that you have some work that needs to be done beforehand to say, hey, I'm not sure I really agree with this. I don't think this represents us very well. But you can't get up and say, well, they want me to tell you, blah. No, you got to own it when you get up. you got to embrace it. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, you can turn there. We have Bibles scattered around the room. You grab one of them. It's going to be helpful. We're just going to, I'm going to kind of hide now in an exposition of this text for a little while. So reach around, grab a Bible. Here's what we see in Philippians chapter 2. We see Jesus as the one who is giving us the premier example of what it means to own the cause. What does it mean for you to own the cause? And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, you have this overarching statement where Paul is giving direction to a group of Christians, professing Christians, who are struggling with maintaining unity in their church and their relationships. And this is what he says to him in verse 3. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress other people. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Now what's he saying? He's saying that you need to take responsibility for one another. Don't be preoccupied with yourself, but be preoccupied with one another. What is he saying? He's saying you have to cultivate a we mentality. The people that you're disagreeing with. You must work to identify with them. Don't distance yourself from them and say, I don't know what they're doing. What were they thinking? Rather move towards them, take an interest in them. Don't only look out for your own interests and say, well, whatever they did, really, I don't like the way that worked out for me. He says, but rather try to see it from their point of view, take an interest in. I wonder why they were feeling that way, what they were thinking, or what issue they were trying to address. The idea is that we got to move towards. You see that in the text? So Paul gives this command that we got to take an interest in one another. we got to have a we mentality. But then, as he goes on, look in verse 5. He says, you must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. Who, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He emptied himself. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Now here what we have is a really clear example of what it means to have the kind of mentality that we're talking about, of what it means to own the cause as a leader. And we see it played out in the life of Jesus. And you can just walk through the text and you can see these key components. How can I know if I am owning the cause? How can I know if I'm taking responsibility for the people that God has entrusted to me, for the work that God has entrusted to me, for the gifts that God has entrusted to me? How do I know if I'm doing that or not? Well, here here are just a few ways that you can know. First of all, is owning the cause means you don't have a high regard for your own rights. You're not always walking around looking and thinking about what you are entitled to. You are not preoccupied with rank and title. You don't need that to bolster your confidence. Sometimes I'm meeting with someone, I'm talking with them, and they very quickly have to give me their resume. You ever have that happen to you? Like real quickly, you can tell they've studied and practiced it. They've condensed it down so that they can give you in about 15 to 30 seconds why you need to listen to them, and they're awesome, right? Because they need that in order, they're very self-aware, they're very concerned with their position, who they are, how they define themselves, and they want you to know who you are dealing with when you deal with them. They are preoccupied with themselves and what they are entitled to because of what they've accomplished. They got to be called Dr. So-and-so. They got to be called whatever it is. Okay, I'm not picking on medical doctors, I could pick on academics as well, all right? But they're proud of their attainments. They want you to know about their attainments. And if you want to see this in spades, you go to a gathering of about 50 preachers. You talked about, good gracious. Like, I get there and I'm like, ah, I don't want to be associated with this profession. Because everybody's quickly telling you how many people come to their church. And I'm like, I don't care how many people come to your church. I didn't come here to find out how many people go to your church. I don't care. But the idea that's there is I'm entitled to certain things, certain amounts of respect, because of what I've accomplished and who I am. And what we see from Jesus is, although he was God, he did not regard his equality with God, the legitimate position that he held in the created order, he didn't regard that as something to hang on to. He didn't value that. That's not, that's not high on his value list. That he be treated the way he thinks he should be treated. The way he has the right to be treated. Now here's how you can know if you have a problem with that. The way that you can know if you have a problem with that is if you are easily offended. If you're getting your feelings hurt all the time. If you're constantly feeling like, I'm being disrespected. If you feel like people don't give you your props then that's a good indication for you that you got a problem with this, that your heart's not in the right place on it. And you're never going to be able to own the cause of another because you're going to be too, too busy hanging on to what you feel like is yours by right. In order to own the cause, you're going to have to be self-forgetful. 
And we're going to see that more clearly as we move through this. So not only do you not regard your own rights, not regard, uh, have a strong sense of entitlement, but the second thing that we see in the text is that Jesus emptied himself. If you see that in the text, Jesus steps down from his position of glory. He gave up his divine privileges. It's not just theoretically he was okay with it, but it's that he actually moved and did something about it. He actually abandoned the position of glory and exaltation. This is what we call the incarnation, is that Jesus is enthroned. He's the creator. He, the entire world is an expression of his will. He has authority over it, but instead of Remaining in that position, he abandons the position that he is in and he moves into the arena that he has created himself. He subjects himself to the kind of limitations that the rest of us have to live with. So he empties himself of rank and of privilege. He empties himself of those rights. He, he, and he does it in a way that nobody else is looking. It's not a, lot of, not a lot of fanfare. I mean, there is. The angels do announce Jesus' coming, but what you got to think is Jesus has been in the womb for nine months. You talk about emptying yourself. So I don't know what you believe about all of that, but the idea that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and there's a child that's within her, and while she is Still, we believe probably in the first trimester, she goes to see her um, cousin, Elizabeth. And while she goes to see her cousin, Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, the child in Elizabeth's womb leaps at the presence of his Lord. You go, that's pretty amazing. Right, it is pretty amazing. There were pretty amazing things that were going on then. But here's the idea. The idea is that the God who made the universe was actually present in the room physically, inside the womb of an unwed teenage mother. You talk about emptying yourself. You talk about putting yourself in a position to own the cause. You want to know how far God wants you to go in terms of abandoning right and privilege and moving towards serving other people. Let's go back and remember, how did we get to this illustration? What's the point that the Apostle Paul's making? He's saying, this is the attitude that you're going to have to have. You're going to have to have. Had this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. But he poured himself out. He gave up his divine privileges. You talk about it however you want to talk about it. So here's the thing. As men, in the environments that God has placed us in, is our posture that of coming down and taking a position of humility? Of not hanging on to, but of releasing. And not just saying, yeah, I'm willing to do that when it's necessary. But what Jesus does is he takes this sustained posture. Of I'm not above, I'm not more important than... That's the kind of humility that we're talking about that's going to be involved in owning the cause. And then let's look at what he does. Not only does Jesus not regard his quality as something to cling to, he gives up his divine privileges. 
He took the position of a slave, the humble position of a slave. He takes a position of service. His orientation towards what he is doing is not focused on, first of all, what I'm trying to accomplish, what my agenda is. His orientation is towards that of serving the people that he is responsible to lead. So see that. It's real interesting in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. He said as they were doing this, he has assistants, has a leadership lab in, at Stanford University. And he has graduate assistants who were brilliant, obviously, and they're his slaves. And they're doing research for him. And they were studying these companies that had outperformed all the other companies in their market sector over a sustained period of time and looking at what the focus of all that was. And they were focusing in particular on leadership. And they were saying, okay, what's the kind of leader that we find in these companies? And what they found out is it wasn't this big charismatic leader. It wasn't your typical kind of alpha personality that dominates the environment, visionary who's got all these big ideas and who's out killing it all the time. And everybody's just like, oh, my gosh, this incredible leader. What they found is that the leaders of those organizations, the language that kept coming back to them through all this research was that the best language they could come up with was servant leader. But as they were working through it, they realized nobody in the business world is going to buy this because it sounds weak. Nobody wants to be a servant leader. He talks about it in the book. And I'm paraphrasing, all right? This is the Eugene Peterson message version of it, all right? So you go read the book and say, that's not what he said at all. It's my preacher version. I'm getting close, all right? So, but here's, but here's, there's, here's what they called it. So there's a title in there. They, they called it a level five leader. <laughs> so it's called level five. Like level five, right? It appeals to ego, right? I'm not level four. I'm a level five. Boom. But the whole point of being a level five leader was that this is someone who cares more about the cause and they care more about the people around them than they do about themselves. And they found that's the commonality in all of these companies that are killing it. Now, why is that? I would say it's because it's a fundamental part of how God made the universe. This is how God is. It's how Jesus is revealed to be. You don't need a biblical basis to get there. If you just study how God has worked things and you're honest about it, then you're going to find that. It's where you're going to land. So, assuming the posture of service. That's the third thing that we can say we see in the text. And then here's the last thing. You're going to, um, well, it's really the first part of the last thing. You're going to enter into their world. You're going you're gonna to really, someone who owns the cause, someone who is going to be an effective leader is somebody who is going to Enter into the world fully of the people that they are leading. They're going to live under and within. It's a part of this emptying process that we talked about. But as you, as you look at the text, Jesus comes, and the text says, in human form. The idea there, don't, so Jesus only seemed to be. No, the point is that he took on, this is what he took on. He took on humanity. That's, that's a better translation. Is that Jesus took on humanity. He, he fully and thoroughly identified. His emptying of himself was so thorough that he came and walked in our shoes. Now, we can't fully do that in a way that God can do it. But we can, 
through a choosing and a humbling of ourselves, and that's the point that Paul's making to these people here, he's saying you can do that in a very real sense. Where you actually enter into someone else's world. You, you walk in their shoes. You see things from their perspective. You work at it. That's the point that he's making. And not just with them and their successes. Because here's what I'll tell you is. We want to live vicariously through other people when things are going well for them. We want to identify with them. And that's, that's just kind of naturally how it works. When someone else has a big success, I mean, I even see it for me. When I preach a good sermon, there are a bunch of y'all who want to get close to me. That was awesome. That was great. Ah, we talk about it, and it's encouraging and exciting. But, like, when, when things don't go well, y'all don't come put your arm around me and go, wow, that really, really sucked. I love you, man. I'm sure you're going to do better. You've done better before. You're going to do better after. We just don't want to be identified with that, Right? We don't really want to be identified with it. It's true. If you're a good athlete or if you're talented at something, you'll find when you're having success, people want to be identified with you. They want to come alongside. They want to share in the glory of your condition and of your situation. They they want to participate in it. You get a new boat, suddenly you'll find out you have some friends who like to wakeboard that you didn't know. Who knew? Right? But now they're your friend. Hey, what's up? What y'all doing? You going to the lake? That's the way it happens. That's the way the world works. But here's what we see in this text is Jesus identifies with us, not in our success. Jesus doesn't look at the world and see where things are going great and then say, oh, I'm going to go identify with him. In fact, Jesus does the opposite. God's rationale in the Old Testament, he reminds Israel, lest they get proud, he says, hey, I didn't choose you out of all the other nations of the earth because you were better than everybody. I actually chose you because you were nobody. I chose you because you didn't have an identity. I chose you when you were like a child who had been abandoned. They hadn't even taken you out of the afterbirth. The umbilical cord is still, and I found you in a field kicking in your blood. That's when I chose you. And I brought you into my home, and I gave my identity to you. I identified with you in your shame, not identified with you in your point of strength. And here's what we would say is, is that if we are going to be leaders in this sense, then it means that we are going to be people who identify with others in their weakness, who identify with others in their shame, and we get so close to it that their shame gets on us. And here's what we see, is that Jesus suffered inordinately for his people. Look in the text. He suffered inordinately for owning their cause. And I would go so far as to say that this is true for all leadership. I talk with guys a good bit who will talk to me about how alone they feel. And who will talk to me about the struggles that they are having and how discouraged they are. And one of my answers to them is to encourage them and say, hey man, that probably means you're really leading Sounds to me like you're really owning the cause. Because you feel like you're carrying all this weight and nobody understands and nobody appreciates and nobody. Here's what I'm saying. Don't fall into self-pity and all of that. It's just what it is. That's the deal. And this is what I'll tell you is. In this world, if you are going to lead, you are going to suffer. 
That's part of why, again, Paul in this text, he tells him, this is the attitude that you need to have. Empty yourself, give up your privilege, own the cause of other people so fully that you thoroughly understand it. And then what did Jesus do? As he fully understood it, what does he do? He suffers for our failures. And this is what I'm going to tell you. Is a good leader, a great leader, is someone who owns the cause of those that he is leading so thoroughly that he carries in his body suffering for their problems. That's what happens. And a lot of times we get in the middle of that and we get in despair and think, oh, what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Exactly what Jesus said would happen. Jesus says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, Matthew chapter 16. Let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me daily. Jesus chooses an instrument of shame and suffering as an emblem of what it means to follow him. And if you follow Jesus as a man in particular, but this is true for women too. But we're gonna, there's a kind of loneliness of leadership that you are going to feel and you are going to bear in your body the sufferings of those that you lead. Now, whether you're viewing it spiritually or not spiritually, it doesn't really matter. I got a picture for you that I just want you to take a look at. It's a picture of Abraham Lincoln. Take a good look at that. Five years separate those two pictures. It's Lincoln on the front end of his presidency and Lincoln on the back end of his presidency. You think leadership takes a toll? You think Lincoln bore in his body to some measure? And you say, well, other people bore it in greater degrees. I mean, we could argue about that. But I just, I just want you to see it. I, I saw that. I, I subscribed to History and Pictures on Twitter, thanks to Matt Kelly. So all this stuff gets pushed to me. Apparently, Marilyn Monroe was a very historically significant person because they send you a lot of Marilyn Monroe. But... And I skim over Maryland real quickly. I just want you all to know that. That's another talk for another day. But here's what I'll tell you. It's that, like I saw that picture. And it's a 45-year-old man who's been trying to give himself to leadership for most of my adult life and try to faithfully learn about it and understand it. I saw that picture. I was like, I see that. And I'm going to be just 100% honest with you. As I've gotten into midlife... For the first time in my life, I've started really struggling with, is it worth it? Just be honest with you. And I'm going to give you a little pep talk here in just a second, all right? I'm going to tell you all the reasons that it's worth it. But here's what I want you to know, is I wake up every day now, and I, and I have to make a decision, I have to choose. Now, and my life is great, all right? My life, my life really is great. My kids are with me, my wife is with me. Our church has an unbelievable amount of unity. Y'all are great people to serve and to lead. At least the ones of you that go to our church. Not all of you, most of you. All right, a disproportionate number of you. And so, you know, but I wake up and I just go, man, what am I doing? And I feel my strength and energy beginning to fade. And I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you that it's discouraging. And I have moments where I wonder, am I wasting my life? I mean, I could be soaking it up in the hot tub with my soulmate. And instead, I'm getting up to go meet with these people that don't even care. 
They're blowing their life up, acting like a fool. And instead of saying, God, they're a fool. Look what's getting ready to happen to them. I see that coming. I'm going to go get up early in the morning and exhaust myself trying to plead them, plead with them to keep them from driving their car off a cliff. Why am I doing this? My life's good. I don't need to engage in all of that. And I have to come to a point. And there's suffering that is involved in that. And it wears you down emotionally, psychologically, and physically. People are always talking to me about, you got to be balanced, you got to be balanced, you got to be balanced. Here's what I'm going to tell you. People who are balanced ain't in charge of anything. You need to get that in your head. And nobody that I know who's in charge of anything that's winning and making the world a better place who's working 40 hours a week. Spending all their nights at home with their family. Getting up and working up before they go to work. I mean, you can do that. You can do that. And you can live your whole life trying to maintain health, balance, and prosperity for a bunch of stuff. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Everything that you're keeping balance for, you're still going to get hip replacements. It doesn't matter. Work out all you want to. You're still going to have a heart attack. You're still going to stroke out. You might do it a little bit later. You might do it a little bit earlier. Who knows? Right? Can't really tell. This is all I'm going to tell you. You're not actually going to accomplish anything. This is Jesus' point. He said, why you worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you're going to wear? Because who of you, by worrying, can actually change any of the stuff? So we spent all our life building, trying to maintain things. This is what I'm going to say to you. You need to be spent for something. The question is, is what you are spending your life for worthy of the life that God has given to you? That's the only question. Your life is fading. You are going to lay it down or it is going to be pried from your fingers. One way or the other, the result is going to be the same. The only question is, when you lay it down, whether by force or by choice, is whether it was spent for something that was worthy. That is it. That is the only question. And if you live for comfort... Comfort will eventually flee you. So here's what we would say is, we want to own the cause of what God is doing in the world. And here's the comfort that comes with all of that. It's not that God's going to take care of you so you don't look like it. Look like Abraham Lincoln did after five years. Well, that was leading the nation through a period of war. I'm just telling you, anybody who is laying down their life for somebody else is going to suffer. That's the point that Paul is making in Philippians chapter 2, right? So you just go ahead and get that. You write that. You mark that down. Don't think that something strange is happening when you feel alone, when you feel like it ain't going well, and when you feel misunderstood, and when you see your strength being spent on something that you wonder is worth it. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus hung on the cross. And he cried out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, what? This is awesome. I'm so glad to be a part of your plan. Is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think, well, I mean, that's not very biblical. Actually, it is. Go read Psalm 22. Jesus takes the lament of that Davidic psalm, and he owns it as an expression of how he felt when he is 
fulfilling the mission of his father. It is not romantic. It is wretched and miserable, and he feels alone and abandoned, and he cries out to his father saying, why are you doing this to me? That is leadership. When you own the cause in the way that Jesus is calling us to. You know, man, that's a great pep talk, boy. I'm glad I got up this morning. It's awesome. That's what I love about Grace Church. Here's another text. Let's move away from Jesus for just a minute because this is where it gets difficult. You can look down in the rest of Philippians chapter 2 and you can say, oh, because Jesus emptied himself and he did all this, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every other name so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And you go, oh, it worked out great for Jesus. But I'm not getting a name above every name and everybody's not going to bow before me and worship me. That's what happened for Jesus when he did that. How in the world am I going to have courage to do this? So let's bring it down a notch. Still a great guy, but someone we can identify with a little more than Jesus. So let's look in Hebrews chapter 11. I've got this slide for you, okay? So you can just check this out. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. We're going to talk about Moses for a second. Because here's, here's the question. is Where is the strength going to come from for you to lay down your life in the way that we're calling you to? You're just going to grit it. You're going to take it. You're going to take all that abuse from your wife. You're going to take that mistreatment from your boss. You're, going to, you're just going to bear up under it. Where is it going to come from? All right, let's look at Moses. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So see that. Here's the fundamental principle. Moses refuses to live with what he's entitled to. He's entitled. He has rights. He has a position. He has privilege. He has comfort. Moses refused that, but he chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin. Got another one. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. I want you to see that. Because this is the deal. It's not wrong to want a reward. Living for reward keeps you from despair. Living for reward keeps you from despair. Everybody who trains hard and works hard is working hard, is training hard, in expectation of a reward. It's just a question of what kind of reward. Is it a few extra days? On the end of your life, is it a better quality of life? Whatever it is, whatever you're suffering for currently, you are doing it in expectation of a reward. And so you say, what would be a reward that would be commensurate with? What would be a reward that would be sufficient for me to be willing to embrace humility for me to lay aside what is rightfully mine, for me to identify with people who don't love me and respect me, and to suffer for them so that their life might be better, but my life might be poured out, as the Apostle Paul says, as a drink offering on the altar of their faith. So that they get to be blessed, I get treated as an expendable. Because this is what it means to own the cause. 
What is a reward that would be sufficient for that? And it's the reward that Moses talked about. Moses gave away the privileges of ancient Near Eastern royalty in order to embrace the shame of a subjugated people. I mean, I don't think any of us in the room can really understand that, humanly speaking. Because there's no Bill of Rights. I mean, you, you, you got the ability pretty much as an ancient, ancient Near Eastern royal, you, you own people. They exist for you. You're kind of in this godlike status that we don't really understand as Americans because we, ever since Magna Carta, we've had this developing idea that, that sovereigns have their, light, their rights limited in certain ways over those under them. But not really there. The law kind of proceeds from you. You are not under the law. You see that? Moses gave that up in order to share in oppression and share in suffering why? Because he was looking forward to a great reward. Here's what I want to encourage you. If you are not living and leading, if you are not owning the cause of the people around you, and here's what I would say, it don't matter if it's your basketball team or your tennis team or your soccer team, or your team at work, or your wife, or your children, if you're not owning their cause in such a way, in the way that we're talking about this morning, you're not leading as God wants you to lead. You're not owning the cause of Jesus. You're protecting yourself and you're distancing from them. And I'm calling you, we're calling you, to say in all of those areas, we want you to come down. We want you to enter in. We want you to embrace. We want you to suffer, not because it's all going to work out for you well here, because it isn't. It is not. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. But because it's not about you, and it's not even ultimately about them. Ultimately, it's about God. Because he has a cause that he wants owned in the world. Because he has a people that he wants to redeem. Because he has a purpose for this world that has been maligned and that has been twisted. And he wants to see it restored, whether it's in your workplace or in your home or in your private life or in your relationship with your neighbors. So you're going to move and it's going to mean suffering for you. And at the end of the day, when you lay your head on the pillow and you say, is it worth it? Which is going to be a very real question for you. Or when you wake up in the morning and you're ready to go face something that you dread with every fiber of your being. And you say, is this going to be worth it? Worth it? The thing that you will necessarily have to comfort yourself with is that there is a reward laid up for you. Is that there's not one thing that you're going to lay down for Jesus that he is not going to pick up and give back to you in a fuller and more glorious form. You cannot lose and so the choice becomes this simple for us as men. It's this simple. The choice is this. Am I going to spend my entire life laboring for a position that I cannot keep? For comforts that will fade away and for pleasures that cannot satisfy? Or am I willingly going to embrace the cause of the people around me? Am I willingly going to own the cause of Jesus in the world, even though it will certainly mean suffering 
because I believe, I trust him enough to believe that whatever I commit to him, he is able to keep securely and give back to me in that day. That's what the Apostle Paul said. I trust him that he is able. So when I lay it down, I'm laying it down for him. He's picking it up and he's saying, hey, Bill, I know you gave that up. I got that for you. And when I see him again, he's giving it back to me. That's the economy of Christian leadership. And it's the only way that you're going to be able to sustain it. We're going to have some time for y'all to get together and discuss. You know, I, I thought about really good, insightful questions for you. But I think the better thing to do would be for you to get together and say, to rate yourself. Really. Just get together. Just talk about it and say, hey, as I look at what it means to own the cause in the areas of my life, if that's what it looks like, those categories, I'm not real sure how I'm doing. Or I am sure how I'm doing. I feel like I'm doing well here and not doing so well there. Let's have a conversation about that. And let's talk about what does it look like for us to put our hope in the reward of Christ. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. I pray that you would bless them and that you would apply your word to their hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.